This morning, I, I felt pressed with this task of talking about wisdom. And if my wife were here, she would laugh because I don't particularly consider myself someone who has a lot of wisdom. Um, we actually have a saying in our house that we refer to my wife as a wise woman because she's the voice of wisdom in our home. And men, let him with ears to hear, <laughs> hear this morning. But there are a lot of directions you can go toward wisdom, a lot of paths that lead to wisdom. There are actually a lot of traditions within scripture itself that all lead us to wisdom. So we look in like the book of Proverbs, this is a traditional wisdom, right? And then right on the heels of Proverbs, what do we find? We find this book of Ecclesiastes, which is a kind of anti-wisdom. It's a, it's a non-wisdom wisdom. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Vapor, vapor. Everything is vapor. And then once we make our way into the Gospels, we see this kind of upside-down version of wisdom, this kind of wisdom that doesn't really make a lot of sense for us. It's not as cut and dry as this traditional Proverbs kind of wisdom. And then on the heels of this upside-down wisdom, we bump into wisdom in light of the cross, wisdom in light of the person of Jesus. Now, how do we live into the world now that we have seen this one? who has come to us. And for all of the scriptures, whenever we're talking about wisdom, wisdom doesn't have a whole lot to do with age. Wisdom doesn't have anything to do with how smart you are. It doesn't have anything to do with your IQ test. It doesn't have anything to do with the things that we would attribute to being smart, to being intelligent. Wisdom doesn't have anything to do with that. Wisdom has everything to do with living your life in a way that makes you fully alive. Fully alive. And the scriptures would say that this kind of wisdom, this kind of living, is actually accessible to all of us. Again, it doesn't matter how smart you are by any conventional means. It doesn't matter how good your SAT scores were, your IQ level. It doesn't have anything to do with that. Wisdom is accessible to all of us, learning this way of living in a way that makes us fully alive. So, where do we go from there? Our Proverbs text today is uh, one that we're all familiar with, but maybe we've had a bad experience with. Uh, the Proverbs for today is actually Proverbs 31. So listen up, ladies. <laughs> this is maybe one of the single most misused pieces of scripture we have. Proverbs 31. It's not this prescription about the ways that women ought to live their lives in order to be appealing. It's not finding the right kind of traits in a woman or like being able to place value on them because they look like this. This is a poem. Proverbs 31 is a poem about character. And the target audience is not women. The target audience for Proverbs 13 is actually for men, for us men. This would have been something that we would have committed to memorization. This would have been sung as a song of praise 
to our wives and our daughters and our sisters, our mothers. And this is not, Proverbs 31 is not a kind of task list to earn praise. It is a song through which a man offers a woman praise. Celebrating wisdom in action is what Proverbs 31 invites us into. The very opening lines of this proverb opens, a capable wife. And this is right out of the gate. This is where we go off the rails, right? A capable wife. But what this text actually is suggesting is not a capable wife in the way that we think of it. This is talking about a woman of valor. A woman of valor. And valor has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with how you do it. And so we see in this proverb a whole list of praise of everyday activities. Things like buying and trading, investing, planting and sowing and harvesting, managing, extending charity and extending generosity, providing food and care, preparing for the seasons that are ahead of us. And what's interesting about this proverb is that the only instructive language that we find in Proverbs 31, the very last line, is the only instructive language that we see. And it's directed not toward women, it's actually directed toward men. Are the only ones who are given an instruction. It says this, Give her a share in the fruit of her hands. Let her works be praised in the city gates. So men, a word of wisdom. We are instructed here to celebrate women and their work. Whatever that work may be. We tend to live in a pretty dualistic society where Women are either forced to choose between a career or staying home, and we value one and we don't value the other. That's not what Proverbs 31 is trying to parse out. It's simply suggesting that the way we live our lives, how we go about the work and the tasks that we put our hands to, matters so much more than what we're doing. We see this in another character in the Old Testament, the character of Ruth. This is a bit of a rant, so if you want to tune out for a little bit, feel free. But Ruth is the only one in the Old Testament, the only one that we see in the scriptures to receive this high praise, woman of valor. She's the only one that we find. And think about who Ruth is. She's a destitute foreigner. She is involved in the daily work of gathering and threshing and winnowing. Nothing glamorous. And for most of Ruth's history, she's not a wife, she's not a mother, she is nothing like what we've been told a Proverbs 31 woman ought to look like. She doesn't have any of those characteristics. She's widowed, she is childless, and she is the poorest of the poor in Israel, the text tells us. And then along comes this character, Boaz. And before Ruth is married, before Ruth is bearing children, before she's becoming wealthy and influential, we find this verse. This is Ruth 3.11. Boaz speaking this over Ruth. He says, all of the people of my town know that you are a woman of valor, a woman of noble character. Again, it is not our roles that define us but the integrity, the bravery with which we bring ourselves to these roles. Wisdom is about living like that. 
Wisdom is about knowing that in whatever situation we find ourselves in, the most important thing is not what I'm doing, but how I'm bringing myself to the tasks, how I'm offering my hands to the work in which we find ourselves. So this leads us to our text in James chapter 3. And James is another kind of wisdom. James is one of these characters who's living post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, now sorting out what does it look like for us to live with wisdom in the world? And he says this, show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. Wisdom, James says, is pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's full of mercy. It's full of good fruit. There's no trace of partiality. There's no trace of hypocrisy. A harvest of righteousness, it says, is sown in peace for those who make peace. He goes on and says that those conflicts and disputes among you, those troubles among you and the people with whom you found yourself, where do they come from? Do they come from your cravings that are at war within you? James suggests that a kind of anti-wisdom life, a life of foolishness, is actually a life that refuses to look at others and instead is turned in on itself. That you have bitter envy. You have selfish ambition. You are boastful in your own works. You want, you covet you engage in disputes and conflicts to prove that you're right and that they're wrong. You spend what you get on your own pleasures with no thought of anyone else but yourself. This is a life of foolishness, a life that only has eyes for ourselves, only thoughts for ourselves. We're left to our own desires, our own passions. It's interesting when we look at the Ten Commandments, and I'm not going to ask any of you to come up here and like recite them because it'd just be embarrassing for all of us. But when we look at the Ten Commandments, we're pretty used to just this list of the do's and do nots, right? But the people of God have spent a lot of time wrestling through how do we interpret these? How do these get applied to our lives? And there's one interpretation of these commandments that I just, I love this so much, that says the 10th commandment, which we all know is, thou shalt not covet. <laughs> Maybe we should do a class on the 10 commandments soon. <laughs> thou shalt not covet. And this particular interpretation says that this commandment, the 10th commandment, the final one in the list of the do's and do nots, is not so much just the final piece of the do's and do nots, but that this commandment actually exists for us as a promise. That if you do all of these other things, if you obey one through nine, what you will see is that you don't want anybody else's life. You don't want what other people have. You're not full of selfish ambition and envy and boastfulness, all these things that James is warning us about because you've ordered your life in a way so that you don't want what everybody else has. It's a kind of wisdom 
that refuses to focus inward. Because when we focus inward, what we find is that a life that is turned in on itself, it distances us from God. And it distances us from our neighbors. So we have to refuse that temptation to only have eyes for ourselves. This is why James says later on in James chapter 4 to draw near to God and God will draw near to you. How do we do that? By refusing to turn in on ourselves, by starting to open up our hearts to see outward in ways that are appropriate. We also see this playing out for us in our gospel text today. Jesus is telling his disciples in no uncertain terms what is about to happen to him. That he's about to be betrayed, he's going to be killed, he's going to suffer, to die, and then be raised again. And there's something about their misunderstanding of him, their inability to hear that's so telling, right? Maybe it's because Jesus has spoken in these parables for so long that they just have to find the meaning behind the meaning, right? That, well, surely it's not exactly what he means because who can understand what Jesus is telling us anyway? It can't be that thing. And so rather than take Jesus at his word, instead of listening to what is about to take place, opening themselves up to the life that is unfolding right before them, what do they do? They turn in on themselves. They start arguing who's going to be the chief of staff, who's going to be the official spokesperson in this new kingdom, who's going to be the ambassador to Jesus, this new king and this new ruler. Again, they're too turned in on themselves to understand what Jesus is explicitly telling them. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to be resurrected. They can't hear the good news that Jesus is sharing with them. So what does Jesus do? He sets before them a child. And he says to them, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, I think we've all heard this. We've all heard this preached on throughout our lives. And we've been told so often that Jesus uses the child as a, a, a marker of innocence, as a marker of humility, right? As a marker of someone who has no kind of ambition. But I don't think that's the point. Children for them weren't just images of these happy little creatures who go about without any worries or cares. The point is that a child is not useful in any meaningful sense. Children are just meant to be delighted in. Parents are laughing because we know our children are not useful to us in the ways that the world thinks about things being useful. I have a three-year-old, and right now if I tell him to go and grab something for me, he's just going to disappear. I have an eight-month-old. There's nothing she can do for me. All I can do is delight in her. That's what Jesus is suggesting to them. That you've been looking for the ways you are going to be useful. You've been looking for the ways that my life, Jesus is saying, that my ascent, 
me becoming king and ruler is useful to you? How are you going to fit in this grand scheme of things so that you come out ahead? And Jesus says, listen, until you can welcome the people who are not useful to you, you can't welcome me. This is the move that we so often make, that we take things that are good and we turn them in on ourselves, finding ways that they can be useful to us. And when we do, this is what James is telling us, when we do that, even the best things in our lives, we turn them in on themselves, finding ways that can be useful, finding ways that they advantage us, they cease to be good. And instead, they become wicked. They become misconstrued, all twisted up. So that even when we try to love appropriately, when we love for our own selfish gain, it all comes back in on ourselves. We can't love appropriately. When we try to love God, so long as we think that we're going to get something from God, it comes back on ourselves in ways that aren't appropriate, twists us up. This is the same idea where we get the, the idea of wicker furniture. It is wicked. It's all twisted up in itself, and it needs to be untangled. It needs to be straightened. Again, this is the word of wisdom, living in a way where we are fully alive, not just considering how are we finding people that are useful to us, but how are we welcoming those who have no use for us? <laughs> when we lived in New York City, which is a whole experience in and of itself to actually live there, and it's another experience altogether to live there with children. Because New Yorkers don't appreciate children. There is no good to be found in children. Um, my wife and I, when we had our, our daughter, we were living there. We were, uh, let's see, it would have been four, no, five years ago. And for us to have like a two-year-old was unthinkable. Like the people who have two-year-olds are like well into their 40s. They can take time off. Their careers are set. You know, they've accomplished so much of what they want to accomplish. And so now they're ready to start their families. And my wife and I are like in our mid-20s, <laughs> like scrambling around with this two-year-old. And life just gets so much more complicated. But even when you go to a restaurant, if you don't believe me, try it. Take your kids to New York, sit down in a restaurant, and I dare you, ask them for a kid's menu. They will look at you like you came from another planet. And then, on the back end of asking for a kid's menu, ask them for a bowl of water for your dog, and they will bend over backwards to get you a bowl of water. When we see things as useful to us, rather than as something to be delighted in, we start to place all of the wrong values and all the wrong priorities on the world. We start rushing to get a dog a bowl of water, but refusing to accommodate the children among us. This is what that life of anti-wisdom, life of foolishness, opens up on. See, because we, we matter to one another, 
but we're not useful to one another. A fully alive life is a life of welcome, especially to those who can't offer us anything in return. That's a fully alive life. Simone Well, she was a French philosopher, and she said this, there was a moment when she had seen the production of King Lear, and she's reflecting on what she's just seen, and she's writing this letter, and she pens this statement that goes beyond just the play itself. If you're not familiar with King Lear, it is about this king's descent into madness, and it's a powerful play. You should be familiar with it, but she says this, there is a class of people in this world who have fallen into the lowest degree of humiliation, far below beggary, who are deprived not only of social consideration, but also, in everybody's opinion, of the specific human dignity. Reason itself, she says. And listen, these are the only people who in fact are able to tell us the truth. The poor, she says, are the only ones who are able to tell us the truth. The ones who are not useful, the outcast, the Ruths, the destitute foreigners, they are the only ones who are able to tell us the truth. She says, all the others lie. guy I know wrote this song. His name's Andy Squires. And he says that mercy is the burden of the poor. The poor are the ones who are not useful to us in any conventional sense. They're the ones who cannot offer us anything in return for our offer of welcome. Can offer us nothing and they are the only ones who can tell us the truth about who we are and how we're postured in the world. How hospitable are we really? How welcoming are we really? And the sad fact is that so often we're not. And this is why the burden of the poor is mercy. Knowing that we don't give them the very things that Christ tells us to offer them. They have to respond in mercy. There's another story that's found in uh, Chronicles of Narnia. If you're not familiar with it, you should look it up. And in the opening book, it's called The Magician's Nephew, and there are these main characters. Their names are Diggory, Polly, Uncle Andrew, and the witch. And throughout the story, they find themselves floating between all of these worlds, being chased and chasing one another. And they find themselves in this new world and they hear a song that's being sung. And of course, the one who is singing the song is the lion, is Aslan, singing this new world into existence, singing Narnia into existence. And so all kinds of things are happening, right? There's this moment when the divine waters start flowing, that these new creatures are now coming alive. And the first thing that happens once they get there is the witch finds the lion and she tries to kill him. 
She takes a lamppost that they've brought from some other world. She takes the lamppost and throws it at the lion. She misses, and it sticks into the ground. And the story says that where the lamppost stuck into the ground, a brand new light post emerges, shiny, new, burning bright. This is the lamppost you're familiar with from the movies. And as this happens, the uncle, seeing nothing of the magic and the wonder of this kind of place, the mystery that's happening, he only sees it for its utility, for the ways that it's useful. And he says this, what was America to this? The commercial possibilities of this country are unbounded. Bring a few old scraps of iron here, bury them, and up they come as brand new railway engines, battleships, anything you please. I shall be a millionaire. This is what it looks like to only see the world as useful. This is foolish living seeing things and seeing one another only for how it benefits me, rather than seeing people as the fertile soil of love and possibility, not valued because they're useful, but because Christ welcomes them and tells us to do the same. Listen, we belong to one another, and we need one another, but we are not useful to one another. We are not a means to an end for one another. That's not how this works, at least not if we want to live a life of wisdom. Wisdom is relational. Everything that we know, we know relationally. We know it from one another. We all owe somebody a debt that we can't repay for those of us who are people of faith. Wisdom is relational. Rowan Williams says that because of that, what we owe one another, what we can offer one another, is a commitment to what he calls a fruitful confusion, knowing that our understanding is still growing, but our commitments to one another are genuine. Growing together embracing a fruitful confusion, knowing our understanding is still growing, we're still learning, we're still figuring all of this out, but offering one another a commitment, a commitment to stay together, that our commitments are genuine. The collect of the day, this prayer that we pray starting on Sunday all the way until next Sunday, it says this, grant us, O Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things that are heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among things that are passing away, help us to hold fast to those that shall endure. What's this prayer suggesting? God feeds the ravens. Your needs, your desires will be met. Those things that you need to live, God offers you. So don't be anxious. 
And also don't be anxious about all the things that the world is telling you is important. About everything else that everybody else has. But love heavenly things. What are the heavenly things? One another. One another. The things that won't perish. Those things that shall endure. So may this be true of us and our community. Amen.